he's eat, eating my cereal uh, at uh, breakfast time. The introductory kind of words of the service was that it was two weeks ago and life carries on. And it's kind of can seem that, well, that was just a day we celebrated. But actually, resurrection is about life now. It's about all we're doing. As Phil was uh, reminding us last week of, of, uh, from John chapter 20 of, of Jesus' words to Thomas about following him, of, of not doubting, of believing. I was uh, reflecting a little bit on this passage in John 10, and I'm going to read it. It's not on the screen for a change. If you have Bibles, we encourage you to bring them along and look at them. Wendy's got a brand new Bible as a baptismal present for herself, which is fantastic. Hold it up. We, uh, we're really delighted when people love the word. It's the message and the NIV side to side, which is great. So she's going to be like, reading it in both versions, extra special. I encourage you. If you haven't got a Bible, don't feel left out. I'm going to read it. Please do focus yourself. These are words that are great. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, Jesus says, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they don't recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees didn't understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Great passage. The good shepherd, Jesus the gate. I don't know if you noticed in, in uh, modern culture, I'm sure you're all cultural critics and analysts, and uh, whether you think you are or not, you are, you, we're all in our culture. There's a, a kind of theme that's been going on for a while, I noticed it, particularly in my mum, a number of years ago, I think I've mentioned this before, every time she talks to me, or you know, she comes down and she's, got, she, she's a bit like a parrot sometimes, she keeps repeating herself, don't tell her I said that, uh, she, she asks me the question, are you happy? And, uh, you know, because if I said no, it would upset her. So I always say yes. Uh, I generally am happy. But there's a kind of cultural theme that's going on about the pursuit of happiness. There's a name of a film about that with Will Smith. Pursuit of happiness? It was miserable. It had a great NDC cultural critics. Um, I didn't show a clip because it is a little bit morose. But it's really interesting that there is a pursuit of happiness. Um, a, little bit, a little bit more happy. Have you heard this song? Do you know this one? Who's done the dance to this one? It's Farrell Williams. You'll have heard it if you're into the minions. It might seem crazy what I'm about to say. Some tapping going on. You can take a break. I'm a hot air balloon that could 
Sorry, it, was, it wasn't a subtle fade out, wasn't it? Uh, it really interesting, in that video shot of, of all the different people and um, the lyric, the song is called Happy. And uh, lots of people kind of were really stirred by that and kind of made their own versions. I don't know if you've seen that in office blocks and, um, and all sorts of things. And it kind of became a theme and still is. It made the Minion film uh, from Despicable Me kind of spin off. And, um, and lots of people, it's on all the time. It's probably to the overplay. But about happiness. Jesus talks about happiness. He's, he's, he's in this passage, he's speaking, and he kind of emphasizes it twice uh, in, in this little version, that, uh, reading that we've read. Very truly, verily, verily in old speak. Truly, truly, I tell you. It's double underlined. And he wants to say something particularly. He says to them, and he sums it up in uh, verse uh, 10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In other words, the good life. See, I'm a cultural, uh, you know, I, I've, I'm on that cusp of being old and uncool. But I remember being really excited about Tom and Barbara and the good life. Even if I say, you can think of the tune in your head, and that little bird that goes around the sunflower. The younger people in the congregation go, I have no idea what this is. Look at Dave. Yeah, Tim's at the back. He knows what this is about. Uh, this is like finest Surbiton. Tom and Barbara on the left. Yeah, on the left, it's your left too, as I look that way. And um, Margot and Jerry, you see, you know it, don't you? And uh, Tom and Barbara didn't want to be in the rat race. They thought, well, I know the best way to abundant life, full life, is give up all that kind of commercial rat race and turn our back nice Surbiton's Surrey Garden into the small holding. And, uh, and our dear friends on the right were a little bit shocked. Their neighbours Good life. Right back in the 70s, of Margot and Jerry, Tom and Barbara. What is the good life? Just a cultural reflection. The good life. Something that we, we are all actually caught up in. And Jesus speaks about what is the good life? What is abundant life? It is very much a theme of popular culture. You see, we're all surrounded by this, uh, this, this pressure to live this good life. There's adverts galore, aren't there? There's people that are pinned up to describe, to show, to show off what it means. We don't need to be uh, a billionaire, but many people think, oh, I, I, to have the good life, to have the full life, uh, to, I need more to pay for the stuff. And when is enough enough? Well, enough when I'd be able to, to be just set up for life or be able to travel as much as I want or secure in my future. And maybe just have the, uh, you know, a week car and a weekend car and, and have enough for retirement and whatever it would be. That's the kind of full life, the vision that is being presented to us so often. That is the blessed life that our society presents. But is that the good life that Jesus speaks of? The abundant life. 
Is the abundant life that Jesus has declared, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, only open to a handful of privileged people who have got enough wealth within their means and disposal to say they can have that. And the rest of us are restricted, let alone when we think more globally of the tiny fraction of the world's population who would, by that definition in the world, have enough. So many don't. It's one of the reasons why I'm so not convinced about the prosperity gospel. You see, what does it say if Jesus says, come and have abundant life, and that definition of having the good life is about enough stuff, what does that say about the single mother struggling to put food on the table? What about the redundant 50-something with no pension and very few prospects? The good life. You see, it forces us to think about contentment of, of what, what does it look like to be at peace in life, to, learn to be at peace in the world, this good life. Is it something that has to do with accumulating more and more and more? The illusion that that will be enough. The lure of the more, of, of the advertisers saying you need that next thing. To have it, to own it. I saw a clip this morning uh, on, uh, I think it was on Facebook, and it was a, a clip about people's perspectives in 1999. They were Dutch, and the question was to ni- people in 1999, I mean, that's last millennium, I know. But the question is to put to them, do you need a mobile phone? Less than 20 years ago, and all of the people said, no, I'd, why would I need a mobile phone? I've got an answering machine, I've got a home line, I'm out and about. Why would I need a mobile phone? I guess even in 15, 16 years, most people now, apart from Phil, are uh, believing it's essential, perhaps. The lure of the more. When are we most fulfilled? When are we most content when are we most happy when are you if you think not just maybe today but in the recent past the longer past when were you most at peace and living abundant life was it in younger years when you had less perhaps you see consumerism I like that. It's clever. Consumerism is pushing us always to say you'll be content when you've got more. I find it kind of a complete anathema to myself of people who go out on Boxing Day to join the queue for sales. I mean, I've, I've endured it enough on the run-up to Christmas of fighting my way to buy a pair, a pair of socks for my dad, well, for uh, my best mate or something. Or those who are saying, I'll oh, go out on, on Black Friday. You know, it's buy. Who's happier? The person with the new flat-screen TV or maybe those who've stayed at home and had the turkey and bubble and squeak, sat around with the family. When are enough shoes enough? There's some knowing looks going on here. I've touched a raw. I mean, look, yeah, this is where this stuff gets real. <laughs> 300 pairs? 
Imelda Marcos, or 30, or three. More is more. And actually, it doesn't buy happiness. It's a myth of our culture. It's a myth that says more stuff equals more happiness. John 10, 10, Jesus categorically says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. There are, there are two kind of words that are often used in the Bible for life. One is one that you will know about. If you, if you study biology, you're studying life, yeah? It's, uh, it's the thing of, of material, the thing of living. Bio, the bios is, is a word for life that the New Testament and the Bible uses. But it uses here in John's Gospel particularly uh, all the way through a different word for life. And it's a word that means zoe. And it isn't just bios of the thing of life, the existing, the, the flesh and blood, the, the consuming of, of food, of, of this stuff, of just being. Zoe would point much more to spiritual life. John 1.4, in him is life, not just stuff life, but spiritual life, God-given life. That John is pointing out in the gospel again and again that neglecting the spiritual makes us unfulfilled, unhappy. Every advert is focusing in on the bios, that you'll be more full and more complete or, or, or fuller or have when in your body or food or clothes or entertainment or leisure or pampering. It's all the stuff of having more supposed life. If you can get more bios, more stuff, then you'll have more life. It's not true. If so, if it was true, why would it be that the most affluent people are often the most unhappy. Why is it in a nation, and I know we're in a kind of age of austerity, but, but maybe those who journeyed through the Second World War would say that was austerity. But why is it that in our modern era, and this isn't to cast any guilt in anyone, but just to point out that in this age of much, more people are prescribed antidepressants, particularly in the wealthy. Maybe it's because... We've been pursuing life in the bios, not necessarily spiritual life. I don't know if you've come across this. Um, it's really difficult to read, I'm sorry. But it's the happiness index of countries in the world. I mean, it's a kind of curious statistic that someone has, has worked out. But it basically says, which are the happiest countries to live in? For those with really great eyesight, Switzerland is the place, apparently. I think it's chocolate and watches. You can see how long you eat chocolate. Or maybe listening to cuckoo clocks, who knows. But then there's Iceland, <laughs> Denmark, Norway, Canada, Finland, Netherlands, Sweden, New Zealand, Australia, Israel, Costa Rica, Austria, Mexico, United States, Brazil, Luxembourg, Ireland, Belgium, United Arab Emirates. We're not in the top 20, actually. If stuff is meant to lead to good life, why are so many people in rehab. You see, we need more life, this Zoe, this spiritual life. More than another thing, more than another TV, more than more stuff. We need spiritual life. You see, to the woman at the well, the woman who was seeking another man, another relationship, another physical encounter, he said these profound words, John chapter 4, 
verses 13 and 14. He said, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal Zoe, life. Not physical water, spiritual. Jesus is pointing to something deeper. C.S. Lewis, in uh, one of his um, excellent books, Mere Christianity, said this. He said, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. See, God is the food. I'm the bread of life, says Jesus. He's the fuel we're designed to live on. You see, when we talk about Christianity, God can't give us fullness apart from the fullness of himself. He is the fullness of life. It's not this sort of God, us, and life is something else. He is the fullness of life. So the question becomes, what are you pouring into yourself? What are you fueling the engine of your life with? Is it more stuff, the bios, or more zoe? What are you fueling the life of your children and grandchildren with? What are you investing in? You see, if material stuff doesn't lead to more life, then, then maybe other people think of, of other things. What else do people think leads to fullness of life? Just think about it for a moment. People become addicted to food, substances, alcohol, of approval, the work addict, the media consumer, the video game junkie. A survey was, uh, was made of teenagers a while ago, and it would ask them about 30 years ago, what would be your goal in life? I mean, they came up with multiple answers, and there were all sorts of answers, but in statistical terms, they said, we want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher. That can attend to be the goal, the aspiration. Can you imagine what children of this decade, this generation, see as their goal, their aspiration? Wealthy, famous. Britain's got talent, the X factor. Not saying those things are bad, but, but really interesting. Um, Jim Carrey, again, uh, a film star, kind of actor, he said, I hope everyone could get rich and famous and, and they will have everything that they ever dreamed of so they will know that it's not the answer. Interesting, isn't it? Brad Pitt. Ah, oh, what a handsome fellow. In an interview in the Rolling Stone, shared some of his thoughts on the illusion that fame and success bring happiness and contentment. I mean, he's got a beautiful wife and a career, and he's got all these, these things that we would perhaps see as full life, abundant life. I mean, if anyone in the world should be pointed to him, 
He says, this man, I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us, the car, the condo, or our version of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? If you ask me, I say, toss all this. We've got to find something else because all I know is that at some point in time, we are heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being, and I don't want that. The interviewer said, so if we're heading towards this kind of existential dead end in society, what do you think should happen? Hey man, I mean he's quite cool, isn't he? I don't have those answers yet. The emphasis now is on success and personal gain. I'm sitting in it and I'm telling you that's not it. I'm the guy who's got everything, I know, but I'm telling you, once you've got everything, then you're just left with yourself. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It doesn't help you sleep any better. And you don't wake up any better because of it. Without knowing it, he's saying we need more life, spiritual life, this Zoe, this life that Jesus himself offers. You see, our culture says be true to ourself. Don't be a fake. Follow your dreams. Follow your own heart. March to the rhythm of your own heart. Follow your passions. Chart your own course. Well, yeah, but maybe we need to hear something of, of Jesus. He says, verses 3 and 4, chapter 10, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. I love this, that Jesus knows his sheep by name. That there's this active speaking, and the sheep hear, and they follow. The New Testament is really clear on this. The sheep listen to the shepherds. The shepherd calls his own. They have their own call, and the sheep respond. I'm told that shepherds can have their own clicks and hoops and whatever it is, and the sheep of that particular shepherd know, and they respond because they know whom they are to follow. I love it that the shepherd says he calls them by name. At least that's an individual calling. The sheep are known personally. They're called out on their own path. They're not uh, factory um, mass produced. I mean, it's really interesting. There's a bunch of blue cars. And they all look the same. But there's something about the master craftsman. There's something about the handmade, there's something about, about the artisan. I mean, we all shop in Ikea from time to time. And they're all right. But wouldn't you rather have a tailor-made? Interesting that even in our own contemporary world, the artisan, the handcrafted, is seen as unique and as more precious than. You see, God is calling uniquely by name. Psalm 139 says, he, you know, he knows us, he formed us, he saw us before we even were seen by our mother at birth. He crafted us. Ephesians 2.10, that he's prepared good works in advance for us to do. And, and it's like we're a poem in, in his creative world, like a, a craftsman would craft something unique and particular and styled to the tenure and the warp and the weave of, of a fabric or a wood of the grain, of saying this is a unique, this is a master craftsman at work. 
This is the God who calls by name uniquely, calls you and created you to live. You see, he calls us that we're not self-made or self-determined. Really interesting, this just, I mean, that astonishing story of, of the news this week about Justin Welby. I mean, you know, where did that come from? I mean, that's a, th- a bolt out of the blue. Kind of being told that your dad wasn't your dad. I mean, a journalist coming to your door and saying, actually, no, your, your, um, your dad wasn't the man that you carry the name of, but the private secretary of Winston Churchill. You had a one-night stand with your mother, and I need not go on. One of the most profound things I heard this week, he said, my identity is founded... It, My identity is founded in who I am in Christ. That he's recognized, yeah, he's the product of of a union. And he described his growing up at the hands and the, the culture of an alcoholic family. And even as he realizes, you know, and he looks back on all those family holidays and family pictures, and that wasn't dad. Actually, he's learned that I'm founded in identity in Christ. See, this is a, a really important lesson to learn. There was a street art project in, in New York, and people would take street art and phot- photographs and, and put them on the street with the question, who am I? And people would write quotes and inspiration. And, and there was one picture of a woman with a suitcase sitting, looking kind of into the middle distance. And underneath, she'd written this, people always say, be true to yourself. But this is misleading. We have two selves. We have a short-term and a long-term self. If you're only true to the short-term self, the long-term self decays. That's what she wrote. In other words, we're all faced with the battle that says there's an inside, there's an immediate, there's, there's an aspiring to choice. You know, you, go, you know it when you go to the shop and you're hungry and you're meant to be on a diet and you see all the chocolate at the counter. And you are the short-term self saying, I want that now. The long-term self says, wait. The long-term self says, maybe no to the immediate, but yes to the long-term joy, the goal that is set before. Our culture does say be true to ourselves, and yes, that is right. We shouldn't just be clones, and we shouldn't just do what we're told to do like automatons. But in and of itself, be true to yourself is not enough. Be who God has called you to be. That's how we become the real self. That's how we find this abundant life, this happy life. This life that Jesus brings. More than stuff, abundance, Zoe. You see, Jesus lovingly says, and and this is the shock, I think, of, of this passage Hear this in love, because Jesus said it in love. The problem with us is that you're all followers. I mean, we like to think we're not. We're masters of our own destiny, but we're not. We're all followers. He said, you're sheep. There's lots of sheep in the Cotswolds, and you go and go, oh, pretty sheep. But actually, when you look at sheep, they're a bit dim. I've got a mirror here, please notice. (laughs) We all are sheep. You are all sheep. 
And that's the shock. Because Jesus, in the thrust of this passage, is saying, who are you following? Who are you following? Are you following the good shepherd that leads to life and peace and love? Or are you following someone else, the Pied Piper or the guru or the latest advisor or the columnist or the author or the thinker or the next cause to celeb? Who are you following? Are we following that which is in ourself and our culture is deified to the extent of just follow your heart, follow your dreams, but without that understanding that actually even our heart can be deceptive and, and manipulated and forced into decisions and ideas and, and can shut off God? How can we say let's be true to ourselves when we don't even know that ourself is pure? God gives us dreams, yeah. God gives us a heavenly vision of, of what this world should be. Your kingdom come and we seek and we pursue after that. But so easily we can slip into actually following our own self, our own conditioned, our own influence, our own driven, not by just ourself which can be deceived, but also by others. You see, so often we don't realize that we are sheep. We're all kind of barring away. Bah, bah, bah. You know, well, not me. I'm not not like the rest of them. We are. We're all sheep. Jesus says, very truly, I say to you, I'm the good shepherd. But we're pushed into all sorts of crazy thinking. Culture does it all the time. Our friends do it. They have such an influence on us. The marketeers spend billions, not because they're chucking away with money to burn, but because they know then we'll go, oh, right, and consume it. Our parents. No one is immune. We're all sheep. We believe the tagline that is always presented to us. You may be in your mind thinking, no, yeah, but that's other people, Edward. Let me demonstrate it for you. Think about yourself. If, if, I, if I kind of said, right, take yourself, take your, gen, your genes, your genetics, and that's you. That's who you are now. And you're saying to me you're not being influenced and you're not being conditioned by the cultural forces around us. Let me transplant you, just you, not kind of anything else, but what you think is right and good and aspirational. Let me transplant you back to 1850. Same genetics, same thoughts. What would the culture there of 1850 be saying about what body image should be? What would the culture there be saying about the look of our, of our tanned faces when looking pale was actually the look of beauty? What would culture 150 years ago or say be saying what is attractive about your looks or what would be your aspiration of a career or family? Or what if you weren't born in the United Kingdom but you were born somewhere else, maybe in Chile or in Thailand or Indonesia? My point being, so much of what we think has been shaped by other things than we hardly realize because we're all following you see, basically what Jesus is trying to sum up for us is that we follow someone or something. Who would you rather follow? The, part, the question comes, and dear Pharisees, they didn't understand Jesus. Dear Pharisees, well-intentioned. You see, what Jesus is pointing out, and he emphasizes that he is the good shepherd. 
We all follow someone. Who would you rather follow? Would you rather follow someone who is totally admirable and trustworthy and, and modeled in his life exactly what he said, words and deeds matching entirely? Someone who is always acting out of love and kindness and generosity to all people, the high and the low status. Someone who actually wants the best for you, not just what they can get out from you. We find that in the good shepherds. You can't find anyone better. The one, the good shepherd, who calls you by name with a crafted path for you and your life. Who knows you by name and calls you out and says, here's a place for you, dear sheep in my flock. That's the decision the resurrected Jesus poses to us. Decide to relate to Jesus. Follow this person. And in him is that abundant life. Wow, the gospel is challenging in every decision of every bit of life. And, and that blows our mind, you know, do we buy Heinz own brand or the cheap one? And uh, do we think we'll expend some on the label or but then we think if we spend something on, on clothing made in a sweatshop that's lesser in, you know, George or Tesco's finest or whatever. I mean, this is complicated. But we resolve day by day, choose him. Choose him. More of your ways, Jesus. More of your character. More of your voice in my ear. Because I'd rather follow you than anyone else. Let's pray together. Loving Lord, we... we we really want to hear your voice because it gets crowded out. We really want to hear your voice because it's, it's sometimes really tough to discern. And there are times we, we can't even hear you, it seems, in the clamor of so much. We sung before our message, Spirit Fall, Fallen Us Afresh. Jesus, you, you said just a few chapters later in John's gospel, that the Holy Spirit be given to us to lead us into all truth. Jesus said, I have so much more I want to say to you, but it's, it's right that I go, but I'm sending you another counselor. Not different, but kind of greater because he's with us all. Spirit fall. 